When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. This is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, and Kaya covering the news that goes underreported that you might not have heard of. Then I sit down with the one and only Lovey to talk about her new book, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. It's so good. My advice for this week is, y'all, it's a lot going on. And just know that we can win. We can win in this lifetime. It'll be hard. It'll take a lot of sweat equity. It'll take a lot of people being unlikely partners and building a world that we've never seen. But we can win. That's the story this week is that we can do this. My news is about two different officers, two different places, and in, in the power of an individual officer. The first is in New York. So the Brooklyn DA, Eric Gonzalez, announced that he was moving to dismiss 90 convictions involving a police officer, Joseph Franco, who was an NYPD detective who was indicted in 2019 for lying under oath about three separate drug sales, which he said he witnessed. And now the Manhattan District Attorney, Cyrus Vance, has agreed to vacate and dismiss approximately 100 more convictions in which Franco played a key role. That's about 200 combined convictions that this one officer was involved in in New York City. I mean, wild. And then we look in Virginia, Jonathan Freetag, 25 years old, he was accused of making up reasons to pull people over and planting drugs in their vehicles in Fairfax County. And there are almost 400 convictions in Virginia that could be overturned because... The prosecutors found out that he was racist. He's not been criminally charged yet. He's being investigated. But the allegations were revealed as the attorneys worked to free an ex-firefighter who was sentenced to three years in prison because of a traffic stop by him. And the combination of surveillance videos and a host of other things led people to realize, like, this man is lying. And the reason that I bring these two cases up is that people often can't grasp what it means when we say the system is broken. People think that like it's a hundred cops need to do this thing or, you know, it takes people at every level. So the police chief and the commissioner and the lieutenants, what we often forget is that one officer has a lot of power to change people's lives forever. Just one. It took one Joseph Franco, about 200 convictions in New York City. It took one free tag in Virginia, 400 convictions People's lives, people are pleading down from 10-year sentences, four-year sentences, five-year sentences for things that they had 0% involvement in. This man is planting drugs on people. One officer. It took one officer. So I bring this up because, you know, I want us to remember that when we talk about transforming the system, when we talk about scaling back the power of the police, when we talk about what justice looks like, it doesn't take a whole department It takes just one or two officers. They all have incredible power to change people's lives forever. And you think about the cost of a lawyer. There are a lot of people who get tied up in these cases. They get a public defender who has a million cases. Like they don't have a law firm on standby just to, you know, fight every tooth. And the system isn't designed for that. People are pleading down so they don't get a 10 year sentence for something they didn't do. They're just plead to something because they know that people just trust the cops. I mean, 
it's wild. I wanted to bring it here because there are a lot of people who don't know about these cases, but 400 convictions being overturned is not simple. 200 convictions being overturned is what? Think about how many people's lives, how many cousins, brothers, sisters, neighbors are impacted by this stuff, y'all. In recognition of Earth Day, my news is shouting out the state of Massachusetts for enacting a new law to deal with climate change that codifies the principles of environmental justice into law. What exactly is environmental justice, you might be asking yourself? Well, according to the article, and I quote, environmental justice is the principle that all people should be able to enjoy a clean and healthy environment and to participate in decisions that affect their ability to do so, regardless of race, color, income, disability, gender identity, sexual orientation, national origin, and English language proficiency. Now, as we've reported many times on the podcast, climate change and environmental pollution have disproportionate effects on low-income communities of color, primarily because those communities are more likely to live closer to power plants and incinerators, landfills and highways and airports and et cetera, and are less likely to have access to green spaces and clean water. This new law, which is called an act creating a next generation roadmap for a Massachusetts climate policy, will actually begin to change that. The law includes important provisions aimed at reducing greenhouse gas emissions and building a green economy. But even more important, one of its most significant requirements are environmental impact reports. So these reports are actually required for any project that is likely to cause environmental damage if it's located within one to five miles of an environmental justice population, a low-income minority community for the most part, amongst other things. And in fact, uh, these EIR, uh, environmental impact reports, are pretty significant because as part of the process, the people who are developing the project have to actually disclose any potential environmental impacts, and they have to suggest project alternatives. Now, you know, this is not usually how people get down in communities. They just decide to dump or they just decide to build without telling people what the impacts are going to be. But in fact, with this new law, the project developer is going to have to submit an assessment of measures and management techniques to limit negative environmental impacts. Um, and this is all subject to public comment. And so the public disclosure and scrutiny that this process allows actually makes public, private developers and municipal agencies more responsible. It puts them on the hook and holds them accountable to reduce environmental impact near these disproportionately affected neighborhoods. And I think what is even more exciting for me as I think about uh, collective impact and the importance of deeply engaging community and solving problems, this law requires additional measures to improve public participation um, by the affected communities. And so it includes provisions where, in fact, uh, language access is incredibly important. A number of communities have been unable to participate in these processes because we haven't made the documents available in their native languages or because we haven't made the documents available, period. And in fact, um, this law will allow 
public participation in a much more extensive way. And I think what I've learned, I guess, over my time doing this work is that the people closest to the problem often have the best solutions. And so when you bring the developers and the people who have expertise in the projects that they're developing together with the community, you often get a better result than if you leave the community out. And so I'm shouting out Massachusetts this week, again, in celebration of Earth Day, for taking the important step of requiring, requiring public participation and, re and recognizing and codifying the principles of environmental justice so that we all have, uh, we can exercise our rights to live clean and healthy. That's my news for the week. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The savings rock when you find a new way to roll, like sharing the ride to work. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others who live and work near you. It's easy and free. Plus, you can get cash and other rewards for carpooling, up to $600 a year. Get rolling on a new way to work with Rideshare. Register today at commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. That's commuterconnections.org. Some restrictions apply. Hey, it's Sam. And for my news this week, I want to talk about Mississippi. Now, despite having a population that is 38% black, Mississippi has been electing Republicans to statewide office for decades, whether that's senators, governors, you name it. 
And a big reason for that is voter suppression, plain and simple. Mississippi has among the worst laws in the entire country when it comes to voting. Strict voter ID laws. Mississippi is actually one of only six states that does not allow in-person early voting. And five of those six states this past election did create opportunities for people to vote absentee and by mail given the pandemic. And Mississippi was not one of those five states. So a big reason for uh, all of these voter suppression laws has been to prevent black people from voting, to prevent Democrats from being able to uh, be elected at the statewide level. Um, and some of those laws are working to their intended effect. Uh, Mississippi has one of the lowest turnout rates in the entire country, ranking 45th among the 50 states. Uh, but the good news is there is an opportunity to change that. Local organizers right now uh, are in the process of qualifying an initiative, which would be a constitutional amendment, to require Mississippi provide at least 10 days of in-person early voting uh, before an election. Now, organizers need to collect 106,000 signatures in order to put this on the ballot. It would make the 2023 ballot if they collect the signatures. Um, but this is huge because uh, given the current political dynamics in Mississippi, solid Republican control of the state legislature and governorship, uh, this is one of the few pathways available uh, to actually change the law and to create pathways for people to even have access to the ballot. Um, that's why this initiative is so important, um, and it's not limited to Mississippi. Uh, ballot initiatives can be a strategy for getting around some of these Republican legislatures, particularly when it comes to election laws, uh, in a number of states now. Uh, and so that, whether that is places like Florida or Oklahoma, uh, or whether it is in Mississippi itself. Pay attention to this initiative. It's still in the early days. Uh, it still needs the language for the initiative has to be approved uh, before they can start circulating it for signatures. Um, but all of this is moving very quickly. Um, and I'm hopeful that this can be emblematic of broader changes uh, that can be made on the ballot uh, to open up access to the ballot uh, in southern states in particular, where we've seen some of the worst voter suppression laws targeting black people and seeking to preserve Republican control um, in perpetuity. All right, y'all. Earth Day is coming up this Thursday. The Earth has had quite a year. In addition to a global pandemic, climate change has really ravaged us this year, whether it's flooding, whether it's wildfires. And so, so much about Earth Day is raising up environmental issues, what we all can do individually, what we can do as collective to save and protect, preserve our Earth. But Earth Day also is really a celebration of humankind's connection to the Earth. And with that, I wanted to find a piece of news that really gave us a human idea of what's happening at our borders, particularly when it comes to children. Um, we've seen a lot of news recently about what's happening at the borders, you know, what the Biden administration has done to pivot and change um, evolve. Um, and sometimes, as we saw this week, at the pushing of advocacy groups and folks that have been working on the ground on immigration and working to keep families together for quite some time. So this news is actually from the Los Angeles time. And it's about a Nicaraguan American woman, Nora Sandigo, who helps children who have crossed the border on their own to join their families. As we know, a lot of children are crossing on their own um, to meet their families here. She's actually called Langran Madre. She's based in Miami. Evidently, her phone never stops ringing. 
For years, she has kept migrant children out of the foster care system by assuming power of attorney or guardianship over them after their parents have been deported. These days, she's also helping children who have crossed the border on their own to join their families in the U.S. So this particular day, uh, immigration lawyer Nicolas Aguado is calling to say one of those families is about to be reunited. Uh, what's the good news as San Diego answers the phone, she says in Spanish. Um, Tomorrow, Catalina's girls arrive. Aguado says Catalina Avias's daughters, ages three to five, will be released from federal migrant shelter where they've been held for a month after crossing the border illegally. Again, y'all, ages three and five. The Mexican girls are scheduled to fly with the federal escort the next morning to join their mother in Austin, Texas. When the parents don't know what to do, when they're afraid or the process is difficult, they call me, Sandigo says as she rushes to book a flight to Austin to coordinate the reunion. I have to always be ready with the bag packed. Sandigo knows what it's like to be on an uncertain journey. The second eldest of seven children raised in the rural town of Comalapa, Nicaragua, she was 15 when her parents decided to escape the country's revolution in the 1980s. She eventually passed north and now a mother of two grown daughters herself, has a good life in adopted land. She sees herself in the children she is helping. As of Thursday, y'all, there were 19,537 migrant children at federal shelters where they have stayed for an average of 37 days. More than 80% of these children have family in the U.S. Again, more than 80% of these children have family in the U.S. Some parents have had to wait more than a week to talk to their children by phone, even longer for federal officials to tell them the cities and shelters where their children are being held. Sandigo is known as the Langran Madre and has the power of attorney for more than 2,000 children. She receives hundreds of phone calls a week from a growing list of migrant families. Her words are swift. She nods her head. Each case, although distinct, has the ring of familiarity she has heard for decades. Avias's daughters traveled with their 18-year-old sister. After they crossed the U.S. border, the small girls were separated from their sister by Border Patrol. Children who arrive with relatives other than their biological parents are routinely placed in federal custody until released to their parents or another sponsor vetted by the government. Avias's eldest daughter was sent back to Mexico, her younger sisters in shelters in San Antonio and later in New York City. Avias, 41 years old, a restaurant worker from Michoacan, crossed the border illegally nearly a year ago and now lives outside Austin. In a phone interview this week, she said she didn't want her daughters to have to make the journey. But in January, her eldest daughter answered a knock at the door and was raped by a stranger. Getting her daughters out of Mexico seemed the only way to protect them, Avias said. After the girls arrived at the border, she had trouble locating and claiming them. They didn't give me any hope for when they would be released, Avias said to a government staff she spoke with. I said to them, don't you understand what it's like to be a mother? They said, you have to wait. We can't do anything else for you. It's very hard to get information. Avias had read Spanish language news report about Sandigo and emailed her. I'm desperate. Please help. I'm going crazy with all this. My daughters are calling me crying to come get them. They miss me, she wrote. This week after Avias was reunited with her two daughters, she accredited Sandigo's group. They were the first people who helped us, she said. The list of federal shelters has been growing exponentially in the recent weeks, with new ones opening weekly at military bases, convention centers, and former oil field camps. A shelter capable of housing thousands of children a few miles from Sandigo's home in Homestead, Florida, is on standby, having drawn criticism and protests in the past. 
Sandigo founded Nicaraguan and migrant advocacy groups and married a fellow Nicaraguan from her hometown. She started a small nursing home and plant business that cultivates banana palms, mangoes, and guavas, fruit trees she loved as a child. In 1996, she became a U.S. citizen and the lead plaintiff in a class action suit to get the U.S. to grant legal residency to Nicaraguans. Congress passed a law admitting them the next year. Sandigo said she has helped more than 200,000 migrants so far. She stays in touch with children she represents, watching as they graduate from high school, college, nursing school, and in one case, Georgetown Law School. She and her foundation have filed a number of lawsuits on behalf of children and their migrant parents, including a 2015 brief with the U.S. Supreme Court of Deferred Action for Child Arrivals, which we know as DACA. She's been to the White House a number of times. She has two filing cabinets in her house filled with cases of children whose parents gave her power of attorney or guardianship. At least 100 were in California. Some of those she's helping now are from Nicaragua. Three years ago, Sandigo joined fellow Nicaraguan exiles in a complaint with the United Nations against the Ortega government, alleging crimes against humanity, including violent oppression of anti-government protests, some by Christian groups. Amnesty International and other human rights groups have made similar allegations. The U.S. has imposed sanctions, but Ortega has not relented. Nicaragua is being held hostage, Sandigo said. Sandigo's ranch became a refuge for migrant families during the pandemic. Friends installed a mobile home where a Guatemalan single mother is now living with her three children. Volunteers gather at the house to help her deliver groceries to more than a thousand migrants who are homebound after testing positive for the coronavirus. Many can't get vaccinated against the virus at local clinics, which requires state identification Florida won't issue to migrants who don't have a government-issued photo ID or proof of residency. Sandigo compared the flurry of calls seeking her help to Trump's first year in office when migrants were deported under a zero-tolerance policy. We are returning to that time, she said. There's a wrong perception in the community that we have open borders for everyone, that everyone coming will be protected. Sitting on Sandigo's patio Sunday, recently arrived migrant Faustina Hernandez asked if she could apply for asylum to legally stay in the U.S. with her family. Aguado, the immigration lawyer, told her that they had a year to apply and explain how to go about it. Hernandez, 27, left Guatemala in January with her daughters ages 8 and 10, heading for a husband who has been a farm worker in South Florida for the last seven years. Hernandez's mother had been diagnosed with cancer, and she said she wanted to work in the U.S. to support her. She and her daughters crossed the Arizona border in February, were returned to Mexico by Border Patrol, then crossed again last month as they made their way to Florida. It's like me in the past, Sandigo said on why she reunites families. It's my mission. She serves the family lunch and then sits with them, helping the girls draw birds, including the Guatemalan Quetzal, a reminder of Central America, the land they left. Hopefully, um, you know, you guys will all check out this story in the L.A. Times. It's a beautiful story, but also a telling story um, that I think helps to humanize um, what's happening in some cases when it comes to children who are crossing and who need support, um, who are desperately trying to find their families, 80% of which are here in the U.S. So take a look, celebrate Earth Day, y'all, celebration of Earth and celebration of humankind. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute. Who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay. Leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. 
Ashley for the love of home. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale. Even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch. When it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's gonna be great. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Lovey is a Nigerian-American author, speaker, and digital strategist. Most recently, she's become the author of the newly released book and New York Times bestseller, Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. And today we talk about humility, imposter syndrome, heroship, identity, boundaries, and fighting fear. Here we go. Lovey, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. Now, I'm excited to talk about Professional Troublemaker. I got to read it. And there's so many gems in here. So, you know, we'll start with, this is your second book, right? I know I know the first book. This is the second book, yes? It is the second book. I was like, did I miss a book? Uh, can you talk about, like, wh- what led you to another book? I feel like my first book almost killed me. It was like, whew. And you have a second one, which is amazing. Can you talk about, like, what led you to a second book? Like, why was it, why now, why this topic? Uh, talk, talk to us about the second book. Well, first of all, clearly I'm a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, it was important to write this book because the idea of fear and what happens when we make our decisions from a place of fear is something that I've seen how it affected my life. Like, you know, my TED Talk that now has 5.6 million views, I had turned that thing down twice because I was afraid that I wasn't ready for it. So I'm like, imagine if I never did that talk, the opportunities I wouldn't have, the impact I wouldn't be able to make on people. If I don't pay attention to it, I will make a decision from a place of fear and how it doesn't serve me when I do. So I was like, yeah, I got to write about this. And you're right. Book writing is not a game. It is not a game at all. And um, but I felt convicted and compelled to do it as a career writer. That's one of the things you talk about that's really interesting is, is this role of fear. This is early on in the book. But you sort of push back on this notion that our our role is to get rid of the fear, like to throw the fear away. You sort of are like, the fear's here, and we got to figure out what to do with it. How how did you get to that place of of not sort of saying, get rid of all the fear, but doing something else with it? Yeah, I think it's because I started seeing that, okay, even when I did things that scared me, I usually won. And it was usually a growth opportunity. So I started being like, oh, this is something that, needs to happen with intention. I actually got to do it on purpose because when I do it, I usually get rewarded in some way. So for me, it was one of those like, all right, I'm going to commit to this thing. I'm going to recognize the moments when I'm feeling afraid. I'm going to recognize the moments when I'm not moving in my truly honest way. And I will make sure that I move in spite of that fear. I'm going to charge forward regardless. 
I love it. And what about humility? It's one of the things you also talk about in the early, the first section of the book, uh, sort of the role of humility and what you do with it and what you don't do with it. What is your take on humility? Yeah, I think we got humility wrong. I think we think humility is about being self-deprecating or diminishing your gift to not make anybody else feel some type of way. I think that's dishonest. I don't think humility includes making yourself, dumbing yourself down. I think it is understanding who you are, how dope you are, and knowing that you are who you are because of and in spite of the people and the forces around you. So for me, I think I'm an amazing writer, an amazing speaker, but I know I became this because of the sacrifice of my mom, because of the gifts that God gave me, because of me sometimes being in the right place at the right time and seizing an opportunity. So it keeps me not being arrogant. It keeps me humble in that I'm like, yo, I know I'm good, but... It ain't just all my doing. And I think for us, we need to be, especially Black people, especially women, especially anybody who's marginalized, we need to not feel guilty about owning our dopeness. We need to not feel guilty about saying, this is my worth and I want to be compensated for it. The only way humility comes in is to just say, you know, I say shout out to all the giants whose shoulders I stand on, but that don't mean I don't get to get paid what I'm worth. There's a part in the book where you write, and I quote, some of us not only make ourselves smaller, but we apologize for our very being. We actually say sorry for our presence as if we exist as some sort of transgression to others. Mm. We say sorry when someone passes us on a sidewalk as if both of us don't have a right to be there at once. We even say sorry for our faces. I've seen people write on social media about a picture they posted, sorry that my face looks like, like it does. Wait, you're asking people for forgiveness for your visage? How? Why? What did your face do to them? I read that and I'm like, go ahead and preach, lovey. Go ahead. Go ahead and preach. Um, but but the reason I wanted to bring that up is that, is that what you say next is actually the thing that I'll never forget is that you, and I think this is what the book does so well, is that you name those things but also help people understand like the human response that leads them to that. So you say, but I get it. A lot of it is tied to our past traumas, low self-esteem brought on by years of criticism and other layers of baggage. Can you talk about why you included this section? When we think about fear, we think about these big moments of challenging systems and challenging people. And I'm like, no, it's in our everyday movement. We're afraid of offending people with our faces. We're afraid of just being who we are. And I think it was important to include even that because I'm like, something is causing us to put a, like a disclaimer on ourselves as if we need to warn people about us first and as if we need to kind of like brace them for impact of us, which is wild that we now feel like we have to do that. You know, I think it's something that we all contend with and we've all heard that. We often have seen a caption or have written a caption that's like, my bad for my face, y'all. And I'm like, no, think about it. How? Why are we apologizing for, for our faces? No, I love it. Uh, can we zoom out a little bit? And I wanted to ask you about your grandmother. Yes. Uh, she is a prominent part of the book. Uh, it is clear to me that she has had a lasting impact on both the way that you think about the world and the way you think about yourself. Uh, how should we, for people who have not read the book, can you introduce your grandmother to us? Yes, my grandmother, her name was Fumilayo Following. She was an elder Nigerian stateswoman who took up all the space she wanted without apology, who loved fiercely, would lambast you fiercely also, but was so kind and loved being celebrated and smiled with her whole face. And I put her at the center of this book because I think about all of us have at least one person in our lives who we know who's like that. We have a grandmother, an auntie, maybe it's our mom, 
who just show up in the world without apology and are like, you can't check me, right? It's not like they can't grow. It's that they will not, their very presence stops being offensive to them and everybody else because they just won't let it. But I'm like, what happens when we take on that idea, that attitude, before we turn 65? My grandmother was a woman who, like every black grandmother, just, you couldn't tell her nothing. That woman could cook. She would protect you. She would (laughs) uh, uh, insult you. She would make you laugh. She will, you know that as long as she's alive, you are covered with her prayers. And just that solid, that anchor, that grounding that she represented. I'm like, how can we be that person before we become that age? How can we be that for other people today? How can we move in the world in that authentic way now? I love it. I love it. it. You know, it was one of those things where it was like, wow, this is, I, I felt close. My great grandmother helped raise us. And I, uh, every time your grandmother popped up, I was like, I get it. I know that. I know that kind of love. I know that kind of mm-hmm. spirit and energy that like other generation. Uh, what did, what did she call you? Does she have a nickname for you? So my first name is Ifeolua, which means God's love. So she actually used to call me Ifemi, which means my love. Oh. Um, and whenever she talked to me or see me, that's what she would say. I love it. There's another part of the the book where you talk about your relationship with imposter syndrome. And uh, one of the things that I took away is that you talk about sort of both sides of it, like the part that might be beneficial, maybe beneficial is not really the word you use, but that was sort of how I read it. Uh, but then you also talk about sort of the danger of even the way people think about that. Can you help us understand your relationship to imposter syndrome? Yeah, I think imposter syndrome is something everybody has in a certain form. It doesn't look the same for everybody. It's not always about you not thinking you belong in the room. Sometimes it's that you are in the room, you know you belong there, but you somehow feel like you must overwork to earn your keep while you are there. It means you're constantly striving and digging deeper to make sure you are somehow worthy of the room. I think imposter syndrome serves a purpose in that those who have it, if it's harnessed properly, it makes you better because it makes you better at your craft. Because if you're constantly practicing it with the intention of being better, you're going to get better. And then it makes you more humble because you know that, listen, I'm not going to take it for granted that I'm here. So you will work towards it. But where it can stifle you is it keeps you from accepting growth opportunities. You know, the job that you are offered that you don't think you're qualified for, the raise that you should ask for, but you don't think you're worth it. The, the TED talk that somebody asked you to do that you turned down twice and had you turned down the third time, it wouldn't have happened. So I think we, with everything, there's one, too much of anything is not good. So imposter syndrome when harnessed properly can be a driver of you being better. But when you allow it to sit on your shoulders, you might actually stop yourself from saying yes to no opportunities or even saying no to yes opportunities. Another thing, you know, Levy, what I what I've always appreciated about you from when I first uh, knew who you are as a blogger, and then book one, and now book two, and obviously, like you know, I know you in the real world and on Twitter, is your honesty and the way the honesty shows up both in how you understand success and how you understand the areas that you need to grow on and. I wanted to talk to you about the chapter Failed Loudly. Mm-hmm. And you recount the story of your biggest public failure. And can you talk about why you included it uh, and what you hope people get from seeing you and reading you recount that experience? Yeah, no, I talk about my biggest public fail, which happened in 2018. People can go ahead and 
read the details of the book when they buy it. But I think it was important to include in here because, you know, this is a book where I'm talking about being a professional troublemaker, showing up in the world, being bold. It was important to talk about what can happen sometimes when you are being bold. The fact that sometimes you will fall flat on your face. Sometimes you will be in the middle of very public storms. For me, I trended on Twitter, you know, for a bit and it knocked me off my square. And that was part of the honesty that was necessary for this book because I'm telling people I need you to show up better in this world and bigger and bolder. But you got to also know that it's not without the consequence. It's not without certain um, things being put on the line. And for me, something I said was completely taken and ran with and people threw arrows my way and tried to destroy my career. And from that, what I learned was that with all of the visibility, with living a, a big life, I was no longer seen as just me. And my platform being as big as it was, was now something that I had to be cognizant about. That my words, even if they hadn't changed from what they would have been before, now landed different because I was no longer the underdog. I was no longer David. I was Goliath. People can shoot arrows at Goliath because Goliath is, is, is the problem, right? So understanding and having that frame of reference, it was kind of like a shock to my system because I see myself as just me, not loving the brand, the person with the platform, the person with this many followers. But I think it was God being like, hey, <laughs> I, I've set you on a mountaintop. I need you to be responsible with it. I need you to know what you are now wielding. It's not the small thing that you think it is. It's big. It comes with I remember that moment and y'all need to read the book to sort of see the moment. But but did that change your relationship with the Internet? Like, did it? And I ask because I think about myself, right? Is that like Mm -hmm. Twitter feels like a very different place today than it was in 2014 and 15? Because it was. Yeah. And like just sometimes people's joy in the downfall just feels way. I just don't remember that in 2014. And I could have, you know, I was in the street all day, so maybe I missed it. But like, I just don't remember it being that way. And I, I, you know, maybe I'm off. But did that change your relationship to the Internet? Um. It shifted it for sure, because I do I, I do agree that we do have a different relationship with criticism now than we did mm, 10 years ago. I remember a time when Twitter was a wild, wild west before anybody was any type of success, before anybody had any type of brand attached to them. We'd just be up there just roasting each other all day, every day, like on some like dirty dozens type stuff. (laughs) And it reminded me that with everything, everything shifts, everything shifts. We cannot engage in the way we used to before we had these names, before we commanded these dollars. And even if we don't change the world around us, when it shifts, we have to shift along with it. Sometimes you forget. (laughs) Sometimes you forget that, oh, the game is different now. And that's part of the growth and the change of it all. It's, it's asking us to constantly evolve, which is tough. So I think it, for me, it was a shock to my system because I was like, wait a minute. I don't see how I've changed, but I realized it wasn't really about that. The Internet is, is different. You, we got to move different. We can't just go on, on, on Twitter and post anything we wanted to or even laugh with our friends in the way we would typically because now it's part of a grander statement. And yeah, you take it to the group chat. It's, it's, it's crazy. Twitter definitely has, has changed in tone, in, in the way people receive intention, in the way people are looking for somebody to be the trending topic of the day. It, it wasn't always like that. 
Uh, yeah, I know I'm not going. I'm like, this feels different. Something feels different. Now, I will let me, I'll just read this passage uh, from the book, one that stuck with me uh, in this section. When it comes to failing, we come up with stories about who we are because of it. That if I could, you know, I have the digital copy of this, but if I could highlight that and cut it out of the book and put it on my wall, I would make a poster with that. <laughs> so. Lovey, I'm on it. Uh, <laughs> that is where the shame came in for me. I felt like I got caught with my pants down and ass all out in the open. I felt exposed and raw and thought everything I'd achieved was clearly a sham because mm-hmm. it was able to get taken away. Mm-hmm. As people pointed out, whatever old problematic thing they didn't like from my raving, dumbass 24-year-old self on Twitter, I felt embarrassed. The lessons were plenty. Mm-hmm. And those of you listening, you know, I'll tell you what's really cool about this section is that it is both a story that you can understand about Lovey's public failing, but some of the lessons that you you got from it, Lovey, are just so great that I'm like, where I'm where's a t-shirt? I hope that part of this rollout is <laughs> I need a book. I need a, I need a bag. I need a bookmark with this. I need like a, (laughs) it's just so good, you know, like, and I'll I'll only say one, but I thought it was so interesting that one of your takeaways was none of us belong on pedestals. Yes. And can you just tease us with what that means? And then there are more lessons in that in the book and even in this section, y'all. So when you read, you'll get the rest of them, but I will ask you about none of us belong on pedestals. Yes, I I say that to my audience and I talk about it in IG stories or I'll talk about it on Twitter sometimes where I say, if you have me on a pedestal, I need you to take me off it. Because when you put me up there, you are setting me up for failure. You're setting me up to fall off it. I will disappoint you. This is not a if. It's just a matter of when. I will say something that you don't like or agree with, even if you love and agree with everything I say right now. I will do or say something that you are like, I don't like that. She just did that. Cap, cap, cap. And I say, I don't belong on the pedestal because one, I'm no hero. I'm a person who happened to end up getting a lot of people following her just because she was doing the thing that she loved. That does not make me perfect. It doesn't make me better than anybody, nor does it always make it me a authority on being a human, a, a great human. So I'm always like, yo, I need you for my favor. So you don't set me up to fail. I need you to take me off that mountaintop that you placed me on because I don't belong there. I firmly believe that. And a lot of what happens in these moments is people project heroship on all of us just because we have 400,000 people, a million people following us. But listen, we we got here accidentally too. (laughs) And we're learning how to navigate it on the job. It's like being hired for a job and learning the rules as you go along. There's going to be days when you're going to break rules that you didn't even know existed. And you have to be allowed to have those days. So that's absolutely something that I need people to keep in mind with anybody who's visible, anybody who's prominent. Don't put them on a pedestal because a pedestal is telling them that they are basically above you. I am of the community. I am of people. I am learning out loud. And I think it's important for people to give that grace. One of the other things is we sort of uh, take a quick, um, a quick walk through the book for for the audience um, is you talk about setting boundaries and there's a sentence. So I've, I feel like I've seen a million things about setting boundaries and I'm like, okay, got it. Yep. Check. Yep. Got the t-shirt. Got it. But you write the sentence that I was like, lovey, I want the t-shirt on this. Is you say at the core of setting boundaries, at the core of setting boundaries is trying to minimize self betrayal Mm -hmm. as we exist in this world. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? Mm Mm-hmm. I think minimizing self-betrayal looks like making sure people stop honoring, like don't stop honoring who we are. And actually it starts with us. Like I can't tell somebody to honor me if I'm not honoring myself. 
And that usually comes with me creating some type of space, some type of line that they can now know to honor. To that point, when you don't create rules that are visible, that are easy to understand, and then somebody breaks the rule, you're like, well, they're like, well, you never told me this is a rule. So it's all about creating the rules. We don't honor ourselves enough. We don't. We're constantly worrying about what other people think, who we might run afoul of. So then we do end up betraying ourselves. We do end up doing things we don't want to do that are deeply offensive to us or just deeply not enjoyable or that annoy our whole spirit. Or we allow people to do it and we are silent as they do it. And I'm just like, that for me is self-control, is self-sacrifice. And we don't have to constantly self-sacrifice to be worth love. How do you grow? How do you reflect? How do you like, what's, what's the thing for you that gives you that, that like you sort of think about your own processes and check in with yourself? How do you, is it journaling? Is it therapy? Is it, uh, what is it? Like, how do you do, you know, there's so many lessons in this book that make it clear to me that you have had time to reflect and that you've had time to check in with yourself about sort of the grows and glows. That's what we, I used to teach middle school and that's what we would call things, grows and glows. How, how do you, what's that practice like for you? Yeah, it's all of that. Therapy, it's writing, it's talking to my friends, it's reading a book. I think I'm in constant reflection mode. I'm in constant growth mode because I'm always doing one of those things. I'm, I'm picking up things that I can use. Like as I read other people's books and I'm like, oh, that's a word. I hold on to that. All of that allows me to grow constantly. All of it allows me to to figure out ways to shift how I'm moving that will serve me better. So yeah, it's a constant. Why did you call it professional troublemaker? I, uh, I call it professional troublemaker because I think making trouble gets a bad rap. I think the world needs troublemakers and troublemakers are truth tellers and trailblazers. They're people who want to disrupt for the greater good. They're the people who are challenging ideas in meetings. They're the ones who are the friends who are telling you, I don't like that thing you just did, but let's talk about it. Professional troublemakers are not just nice to have. They're necessary because they save the world. They're the activists, the teachers, the sisters asking tough questions. It is something that I think people need to stop shying away from and own it. That whole quote of well-behaved women seldom make history, well-behaved people, period, seldom make history. Well-behaved people seldom move and make impact. And I think we all need to be less nice and more kind. And kindness looks like disruption for justice. Whatever space that is, whether it is while you're sitting across the dinner table with your friends or your boss or whether you are marching in the street. <laughs> I love it. Well, Lovey, thanks for coming on the pod. Hope to have you back soon. And let's live it up. Thank you for having me, fam. Well. That's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. And our special contributor, Janetta Elsie.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.